Hiya, pal. Got an idea. All right, mate, go on. I think we need to evolve the podcast. All right, what you got in mind? Well, why don't we just start recording all the chats we have when we're talking about leadership? Okay, what are we going to call it? Sense makers. Sense makers. Love it. And have we got a backer? Of course we have. Tsunami Sport. Quality. When are we starting? Now, get this end round and I'll put kettle on. Top man, I'll be round in five. Chris Seal is an experienced educator and leader and is currently the principal of Shrewsbury International School, Bangkok. He has overseen a huge expansion and modernization project at the Riverside campus and will embark upon a new project of his own as he moves to the Tanglin Trust School in Singapore to become their new head of senior school in August 2021. Chris is a TES Global Advisory Board member and the treasurer for the Federation of British Schools in Asia. Welcome to the show, Chris. And your role nowadays means you spend more time in a suit, but are you still a PE teacher at heart? Well, uh, morning to you both. And uh, yes, that's true. I do spend an awful lot of time in a suit. But uh, yes, I am also a PE teacher. Um, and I'm not entirely sure the PE department at Riverside uh, are particularly keen on that. Uh, but when uh, this time last year, when the quarantine situation was happening, as, as uh, various things started to get closed down, I didn't need uh, much invitation to get a very long and uh, far too large pair of shorts on and get back in the sports hall and found myself teaching badminton again. So, uh, yeah, I still absolutely love it, Alan. And given any opportunity, I think I'd go back and, uh, and teach PE uh, as often as I could. <laughs> Brilliant. We love that. Why do you think, Chris, that there's so many PE teachers in senior leadership across international schools? Is, is there certain qualities that that we have and that we portray that get us into those roles? Yeah, I mean, it's it's hard to generalise, isn't it? But but I think that there's an interesting path and particularly uh, talk about the sector I've been in for 20 plus years through the independent sector that uh, PE teachers often find themselves picking up pastoral roles as they go. And through that period, you get tested with some pretty difficult stuff, um, obviously from a student perspective. Um, but you also find yourself reasonably close to senior managers around you, whether that's um, you know, deputy heads or heads. Um, and so, you know, those senior leaders get to see uh, physical education teachers up close and personal a lot. Um, and I'd argue that sort of helps building relationships and probably breaks down a few barriers. You know, there, there could potentially be a pretty large barrier between a PE teacher and senior management, uh, if you think about some of the old stereotypes. Um, but actually what I've seen from a pastoral route um, offers the opportunity, it certainly did for me. You know, as you mentioned right at the top, you know, the move from tracksuit to suit kind of happened slowly for me whilst being a housemaster. Um, and also while being a housemaster, I was responsible for the academic performance of the kids in my house, um, as well as all the disciplinary areas uh, and the more difficult things that you have to take to the senior leadership team. So I think that sort of combination puts you in a bit of a spotlight. And look, maybe there is a stereotype here. Maybe PE teachers just have the confidence to think they can do it. Um, and uh, whereas some others may not, I don't know. That's a, I'm, I'm sure there will be many, many other people who disagree with that comment. <laughs> So, so confidence is a key trait there. Is it? I, I think it is. Yeah, I think it is. Sorry, Lewis. I think confidence is enormously important um, in leadership. And, and you've not only got to inspire confidence in others, um, but you've also got to be pretty secure that you're going down the right paths, doing the right things. Um, you know, and, and I think confidence is not given either you know it waxes and wanes as, as you go through leadership experiences and uh, but but knowing that you have um, a fair degree of confidence in your own capacity to do the job I think is vital and uh, I go back to that time as a housemaster it was pretty pivotal for me I, I had uh, probably far too much confidence you know moving from director of sport into uh, a boarding house and and didn't really know what I was doing to be perfectly blunt uh, and had to learn a completely new job on the job um, and, you know, my confidence was pretty low at the start of that. But the more it went on and the more aware I was of who I am and what I can offer, uh, you rebuild and regain that confidence in a slightly different domain. And, and that's a, that was certainly my experience. What gave you the confidence or that, that sort of initial idea of wanting to move out of PM sport and into that more pastoral role? Uh, well, 
I, I, first off, I wasn't sure I wanted to. Um, as, as has often happened in my career, uh, somebody else got moved on. Um, and uh, I was then pre presented with an opportunity to run a boarding house um, and a boarding house that was in a bit of a mess. Um, and I'd been director of sport for a couple of years by then, <clears throat> and I genuinely agonised about whether it was something I wanted to give up. It was a job I'd aspired to uh, right from the early days, um, my early 20s. And having got there, uh, thoroughly enjoyed it. And then this, this, this job presented itself. And I, it probably the first time I was offered it, I said no. Um, and I then took two or three months um, to really think long and hard. And, it, and I was fortunate, looking back, that it came round again uh, in that same academic year when the interim housemaster decided he wasn't going to do it uh, long term. So, yeah, in, in short, Lewis, I wasn't sure, actually. And, and I suppose that's kind of been in, as per Alan's first question, maybe I'm still not sure. You know, it goes back to the old cliche, I'm not sure what I want to do when I grow up. You know, um. <laughs> where, do you, where do you go to at those times? What, what, what's the sort of toolkit for you, Chris, of, of not being sure whether to make a decision? That's quite a, a heavy decision. You've gone from... <laughs> You know what you've almost described there as a sort of dream job in the director of sport role to wanting to move to pastoral care what were the factors or the, the people that sort of influenced that in a positive way yeah people um is exactly right lewis and, and the senior team here would bear this out that uh, whenever making a key decision uh, i need the counsel and and uh, time of good people around me um and it sometimes can slow down decision making but i, I don't make any apology for that and i think back to that time there were there are a range of key people. My predecessor, uh, who's something of a mentor for me, um, was a housemaster as well. Uh, and he'd moved uh, from director of sport into housemastering after a very long tenure. Um, and I think it was trying to understand whether um, I was in any way sort of um, abusing his legacy uh, by moving away from that job so quickly. And, you know, the other key person and constant in, in my life is uh, my wife, Samantha, who, you know, over the course of the last 30 years uh, has been, you know, not only a soulmate, fortunately, but also a, a real confidant and, and somebody who can make rational decisions uh, in a way that uh, certainly in my younger days I wasn't capable of doing. There's a, there's a few exit points there, Chris. And <clears throat> I've just picked up on there's, there's seminal moments or pivots, as you've caused it. There's... There's almost that that Nike slogan of just do it. Yeah. And, and and there's also the importance of having mentors there as well. I think I'm gonna I think I'm gonna go down the line of, of seminal moments. So you you've obviously been in the UK. Another another seminal moment must have been when you think, I'm gonna give all this up, I'm gonna move to Thailand. And you've got a family. How does that come about? Well, um, you've just got my character, I think, Alan, in about uh, in three lines. I mean, you know, we were chatting before um, coming on that uh, you you guys will be very good in recruitment. I think that's absolutely right. You, That's exactly right. The last 30 years have been a collection of seminal moments, uh, key mentors, um, and, you know, these, these huge decisions. And, yeah, the, the decision to come to Thailand was exactly like that. Um, I'd, I'd been offered a job uh, elsewhere. Um, we'd spent two or three weeks looking at that job. Um, that was another seminal moment in airport security coming back from that interview uh, when uh, we both decided it wasn't for us. And we got back to Somerset and um, we were still, I was certainly convinced that the next move was to run a school. I was keen to do it, uh, had full Sam's full support. Um, and we then looked at what was next. Um, and before we went for that, first job uh, we knew that the Shrewsbury job was had been advertised but we hadn't really looked at it seriously it just seemed too far away uh, almost uh, you know sort of too far removed from where we were currently and uh, we did have exactly that conversation uh, around well should we do this um, maybe um, and the key decision was well why not and it goes back to your third element which can, kind of does sum me up and it is a t-shirt that I wear fairly often uh, <laughs> it, just do it um, and there have been moments all the way throughout my career where I think others around me have gone oh why has he done that um, but through those seminal moments you just come to a realization or a decision that there is no reason not to do some, some of these things um, I go back to uh, my appointment at Woodbridge. I was 23 
I just completed my NQT year. I saw this job in Suffolk um, and I knew of the school through a friend of mine. And I just picked up the phone to him and said, look, do you think they'd even be interested? He said, well, why not? Give it a go. I said, okay, well, we will. Um, and we went and had a look at the school and fell in love with it. And we knew then that if offered the job, we'd go. Um, and I'd only been at, in my first job a year. Uh, and it's kind of been the same ever since. There've been those key moments which have just turned. You know, huge things like sliding doors. You know, that's a that's a pretty naff '90s film, but but it, it, I, I get it. You know, it it's happened in my life a number of times. You've you've mentioned confidence a few times, and this sort of I like the the night phrase of just do it. And I couldn't help but notice when you talked about Samantha, your wife, and you talked about making these decisions, you used we and us. And it wasn't your job, it was our job and our move. How important is that sort of um, having somebody like that that's a confident and a soulmate to bounce ideas off, but that collective of a head teacher and a wife being a job that they share and, and, and not your job? Yeah, it's huge for me. And you've got to separate it from, um, you know, I don't have any expectations that people should be in this setup. You know, you, you can never insist that you know, uh, somebody leading a school should be married or shouldn't be married. That's entirely their, their business. All I can talk about is, is my experience, which is it's been massive for us all the way through. And I, I genuinely don't think Sam will ever realise the, the positive impact she's had on my career. I think she knows it. Um, but when she's also trying to forge her own career, um, it can become difficult to really get a sense of tangible uh, success through, you know, living. She doesn't live vicariously through me, if you if you understand what I'm saying. But at, at every point, the, those decisions have been key and they have been partnership decisions. Um, you know, we, when we moved into the boarding house, our kids were tiny and uh, we made a pretty clear decision then that, you know, I would run the boarding house and, and Sam had the kids. You know, it was as simple as that. Uh, however, you know, when you look at that and unpick that a bit, there's no way I could have run that boarding house uh, without that support. Um, and, you know, of course, as things developed, Sam's impact on the boarding house grew and grew. And in fact, we got to the stage in our final year at that school where we ran a boarding house each. Um, and again, there was a, a key partnership decision. Can we do this? You know, can you look up and Sam sort of look me with a steely gaze? Can you look after the kids overnight while I'm in the other house? You know, the jury's probably still out, but uh, we, we managed uh, we managed through. So, yeah, you're right, Lewis. It, it's, it's been a key part of what we do. And, um, yeah, I think in, in headship, um, you know, you can easily fall into silly stereotypes about uh, attendance at events and, you know, the sort of stuff uh, in the old days. And particularly when I joined independent schools in the mid-90s, the things that you would expect the head's wife to do. And, of course, in those days, it was very much like that. Um, uh, which which says something about the lack of uh, good female leaders um, in in schools and and disappointing uh, lack of female leadership at that time. I've since worked for a female head and and you know it's I'm pleased to see progress there, but it's nowhere near as swift as it should be. Um, so you move away from those silly stereotypes of the mid '90s, and you get to the point where actually you know what I've got here in in Sam is somebody who I can always bounce things off. Um, obviously you've got to be careful around confidentiality. There's a whole load of things I would never, ever tell Sam. Um, but, you know, the opportunity to get down to the track as we do here and just go for a walk in the evening, the opportunity just to chew things over, the opportunity to argue about things uh, is something actually that I value uh, enormously. So, um, yeah, that was a long rambling answer to... Uh, <laughs> the answer was yes. It, it's, it's interesting, Chris, because my wife's the, the head of senior at in Riyadh and yeah those walks are probably so important to, to how to process everything that you're going through and, and and we do a similar thing we go out and have a walk and and that's where you can actually get some honesty can't you because they'll, a spade's a spade to your wife isn't it? <laughs> if you've done something rubbish you've done something rubbish end of and and I think those conversations are absolutely amazing can I ask now about your professional mentor so who do you go to then and who's influenced you down down the professional side? Yeah, range, range of people. Um, and and right from the early days, um, I was incredibly lucky, and I, and I mean lucky. I mean, first off, it was a bit of incompetence on my part. I, I failed to fill in a form at, at Loughborough uh, when I was in my PGCE. And this form effectively asked us whether we wanted uh, to go into independent schools or not. And I just hadn't seen it and just hadn't filled it in. So my first placement ended up at Trent College um, in Long Eaton, which is a, if you're aware of it, is a, is a school that's always punched above its weight in the sporting domain. 
so I landed there as a sort of fresh Loughborough graduate, uh, year graduate, doing my postgrad, uh, purple trousers on, looking ridiculous, obviously. And um, first day, I got a basically a preemptive telling off from the director of sport there. Uh, sort of, I could still see his red face and sort of angry stare that, you know, right, you're in my department now, you better not stuff it up. That, that was not the exact language he used. Um, <laughs> and from that moment, I, I realised, actually, this is pretty serious. And uh, once he realised I wasn't a complete no-hoper, he became a, an enormous mentor to me. Um, he was a quite superb PE teacher. I mean, we used to he used to make me play uh, what he used to call the progression game in a, in a lesson. Uh, towards the end of my first placement, I'd be teaching a lesson and then he would step in and take the next progression. And then he would take it somewhere that I hadn't expected and then walk away and expect me to pick up the next progression. And he was a quite extraordinary character. He was a brilliant, brilliant PE teacher. Um, he was also an amazing rugby coach um, and did some work with Nottingham and England B and various other things. And was one of the first people I um, came into contact with that just threw all the conventional stuff out the window. And I can still hear him shouting on the top field there at Trent, you know, play what you see, play what you see. And, um, you know, that was at the time, mid to late 90s, where things were getting very pre-programmed on the rugby field. You know, England were winning grand slams by booting at miles and smashing people up front. And that wasn't the Tony Rolt way. You know, he wanted the kids to play rugby and enjoy playing rugby because they wanted he wanted them to understand the game. So, so he was massive uh, in in my development. And uh, I think then as things moved on, um, you know, there's been there's been various other people. Um, you know, Graham Best at Licence Fittler's Ascot uh, as my first head uh, when I was a senior leader uh, was just such a gentle and caring man. And I think that uh, really sort of showed me what real humanity was, and particularly in the pastoral domain. And we dealt with some reasonably difficult stuff there. And the way in which he did he did that was was incredible. Um, and look, as from 2022, I'm going to be reunited with another mentor of mine. You know, and and Craig Considine is is another person who thinks that things of things in a different way to the way you might expect. And and part of that when we were working together in the UK was around the fact that his Australian view is different to the archetypal UK independent school view. And, uh, and I valued that, I valued a different perspective. Um, and again, I'm, I would imagine that uh, when we're together at Tangling, we will have a view, uh, we will disagree, I'm certain of that, uh, but he will always pose an interesting and different alternative. So I suppose there's also a theme with those mentors as well as you go through. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I like that. G give us a bit more about how important diversity is in, in, in leadership, Chris. Yeah, I, I mean, this is something that uh, we talked about a bit before we started uh, today. Uh, it, it's something that, um, you know, as, as I say, when I first started in the mid-90s, the, there was very little diversity, you know, white, pale, male, you know, stale, All it's all there. Um, and, and that was very much what headship looked like in the mid-90s. Uh, as we've progressed, there's been some movement around all this. Um, and, uh, but, it, but it's slightly worrying to think, that if I think back in my career, I didn't work for a female head until 2002, I think it was, when Jill Dixon was uh, appointed at Trent. Uh, and then again, it took me another stretch before uh, I worked with Christine Cunniff at Licensed Fiddler's Ascot, uh, 2010, I think that was. So, you know, in the, in the course of my career in independent schools, I've worked under two female heads for a grand total of three years, uh, which I think tells you something about the job that's left to do um, in terms of uh, the diversity of leadership in the UK and, and possibly elsewhere. Um, and yeah, I'd, uh, we, we've looked at this closely here because we, all three of us work in international schools and I think there might be a, a preconception that we have incredibly diverse communities. Actually, what I've, I've seen here is it's not quite as diverse as you might think. Um, you know, if you base your recruitment on the UK sector, then you have to accept what is currently in the UK sector. Uh, and unless you make a conscious effort to try and diversify your, uh, your team and, and bring that diversity in different ways of thinking, uh, you end up getting what you get. Um, and so 
We've done some work. I, I did some work with the Boarding Schools Association recently on a couple of uh, webinars around, you know, considering diversity and what can be done from a leadership level. And, and you know, it's, it, it's, I'm afraid it sounds rather humdrum. You know, you've got to start with an audit. You've got to understand who you are and what your school looks like. And you've then got to think about some development planning in terms of how you want to change. I mean, you've also got to have the intent to change as well. And I think, sadly, there's not as much in this sector as we might think in terms of intent to change um and look this is also where being a parent helps because you know we can talk about diversity on many levels but here i am as father to two uh, brilliant daughters and you know i'm i'm incredibly passionate about the fact that they should have the opportunity that all the young men do uh, and i know that's not the case and i see that sometimes in my school and i see that sometimes in other uh, institutions and it's not right um, and I think there's a whole heap we can do better to, to change it. Yeah the, you've, there's a couple of exit points there as well as well Chris I'd, I'd like to look at that the quote that you that you use play what you see I quite I love that and I, I just love to think how how do you use that then as a transfer into your leadership and looking at the context rather than having a strict set of rules that you always just follow? Yeah, probably subconsciously, Alan, to an extent that um, it, it's there in everything we do. Uh, I mean, we have, uh, when I first came here in 2017, we wrote strategic plan and uh, an operational plan. Um, and the strategic plan is the three, four page document, which is the guidance document. This is where we're going over the next few years. Uh, the operational plan is a spreadsheet of, in those, when we first wrote it, about 102 lines of, not about, it was 102 lines of, uh, you know, how we're going to do this stuff. And in there, I think, is the play what you see, because what's happened over the last three, four years is uh, that's reduced as we've ticked things off but it's also increased as we've seen other areas that we want to change in the school. And so the strategic plan we wrote in 2017 still holds up as a document, um, but there will be certain areas that we haven't done uh, and certain areas where we've stepped outside of that document to improve the school. Um, look, and, and further reinforced by everything I saw at, uh, at uh, Millfield, and we knew we'd get onto this topic. You know, the, the other person, not a mentor to me directly, but John Brimacombe at Millfield is, is almost solely responsible for an ethos of playing rugby again there which is exactly play what you see you know when you see a millfield side under the posts with uh, 80 meters to go uh, you know for well they're not going to kick it out uh, you know that they will look at what's in front of them first make a decision and quite often go the length and score um, and so you know there's obviously it helps having pretty decent players uh, but uh, <laughs> You know, you, you, yeah, it, it has had an impact, I think, Alan. And, and I think, interesting from my perspective, um, when I was coaching rugby in the early days, I was pretty pre-programmed. I liked set plays. I liked to see what things are doing. And, and that could have, I suppose, come into my, my management leadership stuff, but it, but it hasn't, thankfully. There seems to be a, a theme coming through, Chris, of that idea of everything's an evolution you know there isn't a set way of doing something it's quite clear you're talking about things changing your spreadsheet of 102 lines that ended up being probably far more it's probably a reflection isn't it of education it's never a box ticked and this is done it's an evolution and it's a constant process and a wave of of whether you're busy or whether you're not can you speak to us a little bit about some of those times where where maybe you've had to go back to a sort of default um view on or perspective on something and where maybe you have taken a chance and shown a little bit of bravery done some, something differently despite the fact that maybe that wasn't the popular choice yeah i mean the, the, there's a few examples of that i mean the, there are sadly many examples of you know adhering to policy and doing what's expected of you uh, and i think you know particularly when you're early on in a senior leadership career you you have to earn you earn your stripes so to speak and you have to make sure that people respect the job you do and there also needs to be a framework within which you you operate um i think um in terms of deviating from from that path you know they, they don't sound terribly interesting but one of the things we did this time last year was completely change the way we led the school um which looking back was either slightly mad or um, inspired and, and a positive change. We, we did it the night we got closed. So uh, I think it was Tuesday night, I'd spoken to year 11 and year 13 
because we pretty much knew March 2020, that was the last time we were going to see them uh, in that context. And, you know, it was a fair degree of emotion as we sort of said goodbye to the staff on the Tuesday night. We knew it was going to be a closure. We knew it was going to be for a couple of months, uh, as it turned out. Um, and I sort of came home um, and I definitely opened a bottle of wine uh, and sat there and thought about, right, what am I going to do here? You know, we're now going into school uh, in an online domain. We've never done this before. Um, how's this going to work? And I looked at um, our SMT structure and what we did, and I'd already had a few doubts about it. You know, we used to have these monster Monday meetings about sort of four and a half hours through Monday. And I was already begrudging the amount of time I was spending away from colleagues and students uh, through those meetings. And I just started typing um, and I sort of ended up with a, a more distributed model where in effect, the junior school and senior school uh, would run themselves under uh, what I called academic services. You know, I was clearly not the person to dictate what online learning looked like uh, in junior and senior schools. So vice principal junior, vice principal senior took up academic services. Um, I have a director of business services here. He took up um, uh, the business services angle uh, where he would deal with marketing, admissions, admin, all of the things that make a school tick. Uh, and there were many, many questions then about how that was going to work, whether we were going to be allowed on site and so on and so forth. And then for me, uh, what I wanted to focus on and did for the next two to three months were people. Um, and this had come through something that we'd actually written in the strategic plan a couple of years before. And I don't think I consciously made the link at that point in time. Um, but I took on staff services chaired by me, group of people, uh, and we begin. We began that process of, of trying to get our people through whatever was going to come. So, because in particular, what I wanted to do was relieve pressure on the academic side of things, uh, who I knew were going into the unknown. Uh, and I, what I didn't want them to be dealing with was all of the challenges around the emotional side of life. You know, they just had to focus on delivering great lessons and. I think it's fair to say we weren't that good at it at, at the start, um, but but swiftly got ourselves uh, going. So that's probably uh, the the, mo the best most recent example of doing something uh, completely different. It wasn't I didn't inform the governors. Uh, I didn't inform anybody else. So we just I just published it out to the senior leadership the next day and said, right, what do you think of this? And uh, there was no dissent, so we cracked on. <laughs> it, it seems, Chris, that you're wired up for change, aren't you? You look at the way you've look at the way you've progressed and you've moved on and you're tackling different issues. You, you love change. Is, is that something you you embrace? And obviously, this last year has caused everybody to to have this change. But did your experiences beforehand sort of make you more successful in this change this change method? Oh, that's a tough question. Uh, the the I'll dodge that for a minute. The first the first bit. <laughs> First bit's easy, Alan. Yes, I am. I am wired up for change, and it, and I, and I recognise that it irritates. And I think this is another thing around leadership: is self awareness, which it certainly grows the more that you the more that you lead. Uh, and yes, I am aware that I I can be um, pretty irritating to some because there are there are lots of different characters in leadership teams, and lots of people like continuity and certainty and all of those things. And a big part of my job is to provide that as well. Um, and, and so I'm alive to the fact that I, I can't constantly be changing things. Uh, but yeah, between these ears, I am constantly thinking about how I can change things. And, and uh, I, don't, I don't think it's boredom. Um, I think I had a conversation with a, with a colleague about this a couple of days ago because uh, it was sort of unpicking you know, my, my next move. And, and I think I just described it, you know, it comes back to what you said right at the start, that I, that I just... I don't find it difficult to say yes to the next challenge um, and, and I'm open and amenable to it. And, you know, part of that, Alan, goes right back to your first question, which is, as a PE teacher, fine, from Loughborough, I knew that would open some doors. Um, but really what I meant by that in those days was quite a fancy being head of PE or director of sport. From 2004 onwards, the rest of my career has been a complete bonus. I never expected any of this. Uh, I never expected to be a deputy head. I certainly never expected to be a head or a principal of school in Bangkok. And therefore, when something else comes into view, I don't really have too much baggage around, oh, well, I'm not sure about that. You know, I, I, I just give it a go. Um, and as per your second question, which is much more difficult to answer, um, 
you know, who will be the judge of whether I've been successful on all this? That That's the key to that. I mean, if I do my own self-assessment early on, I don't think I was great. I, I think we got the structure right, but I think we were wallowing a bit in the emotion of having to close a school. It was the first time I've ever had to close a school in, in that way. I mean, we, we dealt with a bit of DNV through various boarding communities, but, um, you know, that's different, closing a few houses, closing a school and knowing that you might not come back that academic year, it, it, it took its toll. And, and actually, I don't mind saying that was a pretty difficult time, uh, especially as my girls were in year 11 and year 13, which was uh, also uh, beautifully ironic. So so that was tough. And I, it took us it took us a month or two to get, get our heads around what had just happened to us. So I don't think we were particularly successful uh, then. Um, we, we then came back to school in um, in term one of this year, and it was great because we just had a normal term. It was fantastic. We then had a further lockdown in January, and we were at it. We were properly at it. And, and I think I'd learned a huge amount from that first lockdown. Um, and this time again, uh, you know, now into our third lockdown, we're in really good shape. So in terms of the school being successful, uh, we've got better at this all the way through. The, the key intervention, you know, you mentioned mentors earlier on, the key intervention between lockdown one and two, and it also goes back to my being wired to change. Uh, normally I'd go to the UK for HMC conference in October, uh, October, uh, yeah, the start of October. That wasn't gonna happen clearly. So uh, I just started to think about this in terms of, well, I'm not gonna get my annual PD. How can I get it otherwise? And we'd had a, conversation in fact it was a row at SMT about coaching and what coaching was uh, and half the team just thought it was a load of old whatever and the other half of the team are completely convinced by it so you sort of had evangelist versus skeptic um, and I kind of came away from this conversation and then thinking about my lack of PD thinking right I tell you what I, I, I'll have a coach then you know I'll see what this looks like got the finances done and so through term one of this year and into now I now have my own um, professional coach and it has been revelatory and I think that combination of just being prepared to chuck yourself at that uh, plus the learning that was inevitable anyway has, has made us more successful as we've gone on. So you're, you're, you're pretty open to learning, pretty open to re reflecting, pretty open to paying for and financing a, a sounding board to coach you and support you through that process. What has it been about the coaching that has been so helpful and supportive for you? Um, firstly, it's very good. And, and I think that there's, with all these things, you know, we, we, you've been around sport as I have, um, you, we respond better when the, the quality's right, you know, whether it's the surface you're playing on, whether it's the people that's around you, whether it's the coaching you're getting. So he's good. He's got a good pedigree. I'd met him before. Um, and so there was a degree of trust there already. Um, within the first couple of meetings, um, it was evident that he was not just good, he was really good. Uh, and also had a, uh, very quickly got an understanding of who I was. Um, not quite as quickly as Alan did, uh, but he's... <laughs> um, and, uh, so, so, yeah, that trust has built very, very quickly. Um, and, and also, I think what's helped, Lewis, a great question. We, we've also had stuff to talk about. You know, I, I'm, I, I'm still, there's a little bit of skeptic in me in terms of if this was a normal year, um, would we have quite so much to talk about? You know, and, and we'd, we sort of addressed that a little bit in our last meeting. You know, right, where's this going? You know, we've got over a lot of the real difficult stuff. Where's this going and what do you want to learn? And I, I was floundering a bit because I'm, I'm not entirely sure where I want to take the coaching next. And so uh, that's the next level of this. But yeah, it's, I, and also a bit of reflection on my part, I've, I've had, you've got to throw yourself at it. You know, this is exactly the same principle as if you're prepared to use a counsellor, um, you've got to want it to work. Um, you know, if you're resistant to it, um, forget it. And I, I think that's been an interesting thing around, you know, I'm quite keen to roll this out at uh, Shrewsbury at some point, but I'm also cognizant of the fact that there's, uh, there's going to be a section of any school which is going to find this difficult to get their heads around. I think that the whole coaching sort of approach, I'm, I'm very new to, to this idea. I'm currently doing the high performance coaching course, the, the executive one, um, but I think it's Carol Wilson and um, Sir John, Richard, John or Richard Whitmore, one of the two. Um, and, and the, the idea of that is very much taking the pressure away from you as a leader to come up with all the answers. And that's been quite revelationary for me in, in, in going into a role 
where I have had a lot of experience and feeling like I need to provide answers and, and solutions and actually stepping away from that and thinking, well, no, I don't. I just need to listen more and listen yeah. better. What, what's been the biggest thing that you've found from it? Oh, exactly that lesson. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Snap. You know, that, that was very much our last conversation. I, I opened it up by, by saying to my coach that um, I can hear myself burbling on. Um, you know, particularly in senior meetings. Um, and, you know, when there's space to fill, I'll fill it with, with words and uh, not all of those are thought through. And uh, yeah, it, over an hour, we got to the obvious answer, which is just shut up and listen more and listen better. I think that's the other thing, you know, in terms of what, that was my question back to him and challenging him. We've got to that point in the relationship, which is, okay, you want me to listen more, I get that. And I'm, I'm agreeing with you, but let's look at how I listen, you know, and, and what are the skills that I might want to build over the next, um, few months in terms of taking that on board uh so yeah that's been there the other thing i've learned is is that you know again why do you need to learn this so late in life is what's so frustrating is a bit like what you you come to realize in leadership that a variety of styles is right it's exactly the same in coaching you know and, and we had a good conversation about instructional coaching the other day and that the fact that there's still a place for that you know offering your advice and opinion um, and supporting colleagues by doing that is perfectly valid and I think there's a little bit of a narrative building around coaching that it's about you know almost going back to the guided discovery stuff and and, and the, you know there will be a whole heap of people who will be deeply skeptical about that and rightly so. Yeah it, it, it's funny it's all linking into a lot of uh, the look at I'm looking at models of leadership at the moment uh, Chris and it's it's there's no cookie cutter approach. No. Right. It's not one way, isn't it? It's not one slide on a PowerPoint. It's utilizing everything that you've got and putting it into the mix, isn't it? And as you move into a new role, then so another change. <laughs> what are you going to then take from everything that you've done and then think, oh, right, I've got a new chance now? What's the first thing you're going to do? Uh, listen. Uh... <laughs> Seriously, and it started already uh, because, uh, you know, it's a long time, uh, over a year's lead-in, but, um, you know, Tanglin's a hell of a school and uh, the first thing I've got to do is, is understand it better. And so, you know, use the next 12 to 14 months to really get under the skin of it. It's not about what I bring to it, it's about what's already there. And so, you know, I know sometimes, sometimes people are reticent to, to you know, hear history or deliver history, but actually the history is crucial for me. I, I want to know where the school's been, where it's going, what's happening, um, you know, who the key personalities are, uh, all the things that, that various colleagues are thinking and doing. Um, yeah, there's a, there's a huge piece of work around, around all of that. And, uh, and then in the early days, I, I go back to, you know, I can hear myself sort of in earlier days giving sessions at the Boarding Schools Association about change management and other things. And, and I, I, do, I do still believe it, but I probably overemphasized it at the time that delivery is key. You've got to deliver. You know, as a leader and and in in the early days at Tanglin, i'll certainly be looking for ways of delivering for colleagues and ways of delivering for uh, students and parents uh, and a way of trying to progress things quickly so you know searching out those easy wins and not so easy wins and getting into those um with some enthusiasm not not in a knee-jerk way or a rushed way but based on the you know the listening that you've done first um so I don't have any uh, firm ideas about what that is. You know, that would be naive at this point in time to deliver that. But uh, yeah, it, it, it's interesting. And, you know, having gone through interviews recently, you do kind of begin to reflect on this more and more, you know, what's your leadership style? You know, how will you, how, what will your 100, first 100 days look like? So on and so forth. Uh, and you kind of come out with generic answers in the way that I've just done. Um, but you also say there's no cookie cutter answer here. I just uh, a couple of weeks ago finished reading, uh, reading Shoe Dog, uh, which is appropriate given your comment earlier on. Uh, Phil Knight, uh, founder of Nike, um, and I recommend that to you because um, it's the perfect example of distributed leadership. And in fact, at various times, not even bothering to lead at all. Um, and you know, here we are with a multi-billion-dollar uh, corporation on the back of it. So. Yeah, uh, no right or wrong answer, but I shall certainly be listening intently over the next 12 months. How prepared are you going into that, that change of role and into tangling? Have you, how, how set are you in the kind of things that you want to do, you want to be changing? How much do you plan ahead and how much do you just wait to see, like you've said already, where it sort of goes and, and where you can make some, some inroads and make some positive change? 
Yeah, I mean, at this stage, Lewis, not at all, um, other than, you know, a number of conversations through interview process about the, the uh, ambition of the governing body. I think that that's fairly key uh, and has been uh, articulated. Uh, and there are two or three things in the back of my mind uh, that drop out of that uh, for me. But, yeah, it's more back to what you both said, which is that, you know, it, it will be very much play as you see it. You know, there's um, governing bodies should uh, offer vision and direction and the heads of schools should do that too. Um, but the how you deliver it is about, um, you know, what you see on the ground. You know, we all want to score 50 points in a rugby game, but how you do it uh, will depend on what the opposition bring. Um, and so, you know, th there's a whole range of, uh, reactions that need to be thought about when you first arrive uh, but yeah there are a few things but um, the, the interesting one for me will be about priorities you know w which of those things come first and why um, you know th that's the sort of thing that I want to unpick in particular through the start of next year um, you know as we get to sort of May April time I'll start to be thinking about okay I do need to be prepared and start writing some stuff in the background um, but what those things are on I couldn't tell you now it's, it's way too early and and possibly not even in August 2022 you know we'll have to wait and see yeah judging from what from what we've got from today when you're you're really keen on change and you're proactive how hard would it be to be sitting on your hands when you see something you want to change but you want to also listen and be patient talk us through that 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 intrigues me because I'm Exactly the same. I want to bosh, bosh, bosh. Let's get things done. And yeah. sometimes it just needs to take a step back, don't you? Do you know what I mean? It's hard. It's really hard, Alan. And uh, it it gets easier um, in this job simply because there are, there are too many other things. Uh, so there'll be certain uh, areas where you um, almost unconsciously sitting on your hands because you just actually we've got one at the moment that's just bubbled up uh, in the last couple of weeks that we've known is going to be a challenge for a while uh, and has always all of a sudden become an urgent challenge. Leo Winkley the head at Shrewsbury uh, School in the UK uh, describes this beautifully by talking about itches you know that um, you know you will you will always have certain itches uh, as a head and uh, the key is knowing which one to scratch at which time um, and I think that's a a really nice uh, way of putting it and uh, yeah but it but it can be tough and and it also you know it goes back to all the experience you you two have had and and, and I've had in in the lessons that we've taught down the years that there are so many things you know physical education and education as a whole is such a big open-ended task that there are so many things you could correct and modify and change um, if you get into that you you never play you know, and you never enjoy yourself doing what you're supposed to be doing. And I think that's also been a big learn uh, is that uh, I don't think I, well, I don't regret anything that we've done, uh, but uh, could I have enjoyed and embraced the here and now a little bit more? Yeah, absolutely. Rather than looking at what next, what next, what next? Uh, I think that's, that's fair. Yeah. And has, has COVID done that, Chris? Has, has it given us that time to pause and, and just do the things we've talked about, the, 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 the extra planning to get better, the time with families, the staff welfare. Do you think that's a fair, positive reflection of, of, of COVID times? Uh, yes and no. Uh, I think that, I think some of the bits that you said there, yes, have come through really strongly. Um, and there has been some extra time. You know, if you think a school like ours, a school like yours, the, the co-curriculum has been really struggling throughout this period of time. And, and if you think about what your usual working day looks like at whatever level of school you are, um, it's extended because of the co-curriculum, as it should be. Um, and so, you know, now with, with online learning, our days are coming to a close that bit earlier um, and so there's the unintended consequence uh, for families around the world in this situation that they are together more often um, and certainly first time through when the four of us were here uh, before my eldest went off to university that was that was a wonderful time in lots of ways you know we you know happy hours on the balcony you know a chance to sit and talk and and for the first time I think in in a good while you know proper conversations with your teenage daughters which are fraught with danger as you can imagine uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, a good really real good family time um and 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 that's not necessarily a popular thing to say because i think there's been an awful lot of doom and gloom stuff around covid but there have been benefits um 
we we were stuck here in Thailand. Uh, there was no real way of getting back. Um, and if you did get back, there was then it was very difficult to return to Thailand. So last summer as an opportunity to explore the country, uh, amazing, absolutely amazing. And I think loads of colleagues here got a huge amount out of that. Uh, and again, more time with the family. The staff welfare piece, I think, has been something of a mixed mixed bag. Uh, I think um, what it's paused, what it's made all of us pause and think about is, is, is connections and community and how we try to look out for each other. Um, you know, the combination of COVID and two or three other difficult challenges here have meant that I've seen, I've visibly seen the community come together better over the last uh, 12 months. Uh, and, and you can feel it and sense it that uh, people are much quicker to offer support uh, and also instinctively happier to look out for each other in a way that they perhaps wouldn't have done uh, before. But, uh, and there's a big but, you know, the reality is that we've spent a huge amount of time on our own looking at these things. Um, and I do worry. Um, I worry in particular for our, our single colleagues. Uh, I think it's been disproportionately difficult. Um, and, you know, that's an interesting one because often when you think about staff welfare, you, you, you can be pulled into various boxes and, and you know, narratives around families, which are of course accurate. You know, families have found this difficult too. And the combination of online learning and trying to hold down a, a serious job, I'm seeing that across my senior team. Um, but think about people on their own, you know, and the solitude uh, and the difficulty that that brings uh, and, and the lack of support networks that we spoke about earlier on. Um, and so, yeah, we, we've done similar to what I'm sure uh, many good schools have done, which is uh, put registers together, weekly check-ins with people, you know, um, agenda items in leadership meetings where we're, we're going down a list of staff and checking in and somebody's appointed to make sure that that member of staff at least has contact. Um, and, <clears throat> yeah, that's been good um but i think there's also only so far you can go um you would expect me to say this but physical activity has been a big part of what we've tried to do as well uh, and where possible we've kept elements of our site open um squash courts uh, the backfield the athletics track you know so that people can exercise and do something and i think that's worked really well yeah it's it's a strange time isn't it and as I said earlier, you're wired up for change, and you've made a you've made the best out of it. What are the key lessons learned then, Chris? Do you reckon from this time that you're going to take forward into your new role and and to carry on with what you're doing at Shrewsbury? Yeah, good question. Um, <clears throat> well, we've we've said it a couple of times. Listen, listen more, um, and and I think that's that's been a key lesson of of the coaching stuff. Um, I think. Um, through the experience of the last 12 months, uh, you, you sort of, you do learn about the resilience of people and the capacity to continue uh, running and leading schools uh, in almost any circumstance. You know, I, I think that it's been a quite extraordinary lesson for us all that, you know, and, and this, I go back to my reflection about March, 2020, there was a time there where we just got hung up on the emotion of it all and the difficulty of it all. And I, I remember a, a sort of pivotal moment when the British Embassy told us that there were uh, not going to be any flights out of Bangkok uh, and if you were going to leave, leave now. Uh, and that's an interesting moment. You know, you're first posting overseas uh, three years into it and somebody says to you, right, if you're going to go, go now. And you wouldn't be human if you didn't consider what that actually looked like, you know, in terms of, you know, scores of staff getting on planes and disappearing here. You know, how do you... How do you run a school then? And and I know I know in China some of those things have actually happened. Uh, so uh, yeah, that that was that was tricky. Uh, but then what you learn and learnt at the time and and learn again now is that you can do this. You know, and, and you know the world doesn't stop spinning. Uh, everybody still wants to learn. Uh, everybody still wants to teach, uh, and we will find a way. Um, and <clears throat> yeah, you said it earlier on. Uh, you can also find adaptable and flexible routes through all of this that maybe, you know, are better than the ones you had before. You know, I think it's challenged some interesting preconceived ideas about education that, uh, you know, why, why do we do parents' evenings in person? Um, you know, other than, other than the human interaction, 
um, you know, the, the, the long queues that happen at just about every parent's evening, you know, they drive parents mad, you know, so, so why don't we do that differently and have set appointments in a digital domain where you're not queuing, you can make yourself a cup of tea, do what you want to do, uh, and, and then deal with that appointment. So I, I think there's a number of things that we'll carry on doing uh, afterwards. That, that's the biggest takeaway for me from COVID, that parent, the online parent is so much better. The, the only problem with it is when it cuts you five minutes and then you're like, oh no, I've got to quickly email them and say, I'm sorry. And it's- <laughs> it is, it's unforgiving that software, isn't it? Bosh, you're out. <laughs> oh, brilliant. We, we, we're going to wind it down now, Chris, and we have a few, uh, a bit more fun questions just to, to finish off. The first one from me then will be uh, your three leaders, Chris. Who, who would be your three leaders in world history? Could be sportsmen, political uh, figures, dead or alive, who you'd love to have an evening meal with and have a good chat. Well, I, I cheated on this one because I, I watched a few of your videos, so I, I, I sort of I <laughs> partly hoped this was going to come up. So I, correct, I did correct, a- correct answer, Chris. Correct answer. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> um, and yeah, I, I, maybe I've overthought this, but I, I came up with three. Uh, I came up with Gandhi um, because just extraordinary character. I'd love to know more. Um, and especially with, you know, I'm a reasonably passionate amateur historian. I'm old enough to have a subsidiary subject uh, as was in those days. And uh, history is my subsidiary subject. So I've taught quite a bit of history and, and I'd just love to, listen to him and and you know obviously the pearls of wisdom but also there's there's a few bits in there that you know are not uh not easy you know so i, I think there's a that, that would be an interesting conversation my second one is clive woodward uh which i know is a slightly odd choice sitting next to gandhi at dinner uh, <laughs> I, firstly i've always enjoyed listening to him uh and i think all the sort of you think about sports pundits there are many and there are many really moderate ones and apologies to those of you out there who are sports pundits but there's some really moderate ones he is far from moderate he knows exactly what he's talking about he gets straight to the point um and so i'm fascinated i'm fascinated with the whole 2003 thing i just want to know more i want to know what it was like on the inside um and i also know he'll talk a lot so over dinner, you've got to have people who are going to talk a lot. And I also know he'll ask Gandhi a lot of questions. <laughs> That's going to be nice because I can just sit there, gently sip my wine and just enjoy what he's saying. <laughs> have, you, have you listened to his podcast? Um, he was on the High Performance Podcast with, with Jake and, and Damien Hughes. It's, it's a brilliant hour if you've got time to listen to it, Chris. He, he's got a brilliant thing called Lombardi Time. Have, have you heard of that? Yeah, yeah. Well, that, Absolutely that's a, love it. Yeah, and that's a Tony Rolt one. That goes back 30 years. I first heard that from Tony Rolt, and and he, my goodness, he made students stick to it as well. So, uh, yeah, that's a good one. I look forward to that, Alan. I've, I've not heard that one. I'm stuck on Rio Ferdinand at the moment. I'm quite enjoying that one. Oh, that's, okay. a, that's a good hour, too. Um, yeah. So my third one, this is controversial, uh, but I'll explain myself. I, Margaret Thatcher is my third uh, pick, and not because I'm a fan, uh, but because uh, two things. Firstly, I've... I finished reading a book. Dominic Sambrook is one of the best modern historians, uh, I think, out there. And he's written some brilliant books about the 1980s. And you know, he was born in 73. So the, the 80s was very much, if you like, a Thatcher's child in some respect. You grow up under the, the gaze of the Conservative government at that time. Difficult period. My wife's father was an electrical engineer down the mines, lost his job. You know, there was an, always an interesting dynamic uh, in that household around uh, politics and other things. So I'm interested in that whole period. Uh, I also know that she will hold court, you know, and, and both Gandhi and Clive can just be quiet for a minute while Margaret <laughs> uh, how the world should be run. And also, one thing that has nagged me about this is, you know, polemic character, lover or hater, whatever like that. I'm, I'm sort of not really like that. I, I can see it from both sides because it, particularly across my family, I can see it from both sides. I really want to know what she intended I think you know that that's the question for for margaret you know what were you trying to do you know and obviously this is impossible because a she's not with us anymore and, and you know b i don't think she had the capacity to reflect on it particularly but i'd just love to ask that question of what was your intent um and and are you happy with the outcome you know and and, and i think yeah so i think that would be a, a good dinner party i'm not sure i'd say much yeah, um, oh, exactly. But three great guests. It, it, it's it's funny, Chris, because both Lewis and I grew up in South Yorkshire, where 
Thatcher's almost like a, a hated figure. And, I, and across the board, it, it's, I mean, I can remember, I remember seeing people celebrating when, when she died and I'm just like, come on guys, you know, can, we, can we just take a step back and have a look? And, it, and the benefit of hindsight is what you've just talked about. And just watching the crown where the, the lady, yeah. is it Gillian, is it, what's she called? The lady from? Gillian Anderson. Gillian Anderson plays such a great role in that. But you think a female leader at that time was unheard of in that sense, weren't it? See, a real pioneer for female leadership, strong female leadership. Yeah, and also my personal history sort of supports my curiosity with this. We we had to move south in 82 uh, because uh, the works that Dad was working in uh, closed down in the 82 recession. You know, probably her worst moment just before the, the Falklands. And then... You know, meeting Sam and meeting Sam's father and understanding that, you know, and actually that was early 90s uh, when the pits were just finishing being closed down. And exactly as you say, walking into a family that would would bear, would not hear her name. Uh, and uh, yeah, that was that was pretty interesting as well. And, and then, you know, also then the combination of uh, when my parents moved south uh, and we were lucky enough to get ourselves into grammar schools and then got the benefits of, you know, the, the, the late 80s and the, and the early 90s. And, and uh, yeah, so I, I, it's a confusing period of history, which is part of what, what I love about it. And, and in my own history, fairly confusing around was, was that a good time or was that not a good time? And, uh, and, and certain elements of my family it was not a good time. And my father-in-law is an interesting one because having gone through exactly as you described with the South Yorkshire stuff, he was in uh, Rufford, uh, North Knotts, and um, yeah, disaster, lose your job, start your new career, uh, but 20 years later had done exactly that and, and done very well uh, out of it. So yeah, com- that sort of com- conflict of was that good or bad is, is fascinating to me. Yeah, the pain at the time versus the outcome since and the, the progress that's been made. It'd be interesting, yeah. wouldn't it? You'd have Margaret Thatcher and Clive Woodward arguing and Gandhi can be the coach. <laughs> Chris, let's imagine you were behind a billboard by the side of a busy road and you were allowed to print whatever you wanted on that billboard. What, what would it say? Well, that's a good one. I've not prepared for that one. Um, I, can't, I can't use just do it. Um, that's, that, Might be a that, few copyright issues on that one. <laughs> I'd be tempted to put why not on there. Um, oh, yes, nice. Uh, and and I, that that is something that I well I do irritate the senior team here with that you know why why don't we do that um, and and there are often good reasons why why we don't do certain things but <laughs> yeah that would be there I, I mean I think one the other thing that I'm learning increasingly and uh, it's just be yourself um, that that's the other thing you know you just don't try to be somebody else you know I, and and I think. I'd, I'd like to think that actually at least for the last nine to ten years, certainly in senior leadership, that's been a common theme. Um, you know, I'd, I've tried to be as authentic as I possibly can. Um, and, and that's a challenge sometimes because you, you do have to slip into a certain role and do certain things that, uh, as you asked about earlier on, Lewis, adhere to you know, the, the party line. And that's part of the job. But, but in general terms, uh, you know, be yourself uh, and express yourself in, in that way. So, um, yeah, maybe, maybe two sides of that billboard. A double sided. We've, um, we've had a, an incredible hour with you, Chris. You know, you talk there so strongly about being yourself, you know, right back to, to Alan's psychoanalysis in the first 20 seconds of uh, just just doing it and enjoying change and being a, a learner and a lifelong learner, you know, and you, you really demonstrated that through that vulnerability you're showing with, with going out there and trying the coaching, you know, some wonderful messages in what you've, you've talked through with us in the last hour, Chris. And I just wonder if you might want to summarise that in, in, uh, in a question of, of what does infinite learning mean to you? Well, yeah, and, and I suppose my sort of natural restlessness uh, is is a predisposition to do exactly that. You know, and, and I, I say, I was, I was sort of hoping, I've got my prop, I was hoping you're going to ask me what I'm reading. Uh, limits to growth, uh, infinite, infinite learning. I, I, yeah, I'm an information junkie and uh, and I, I'm constantly thinking about not only uh, trying to better myself, that's that's a constant theme. I, I want to be better um, and better at what I do, uh, better at who I am, uh, but also I'm just fascinated by the world around me. And I just want to know uh, what, what's going on. So this is a good read at the moment where a study based out of MIT in the US 40 years ago proposed that there would 
serious limits to economic growth. It turns out that they are partly right, uh, and those limits are human limits and the mess we're making of the world. Um, and, and that sort of thing, you know, what the hell's it, what are you reading that for? You know, that's the, obvious, the, the next question that people hear, well, why don't you read more books about pedagogy, so on and so forth? Well, yeah, I could. Um, but partly what I'm paid to do is look at the bigger picture and the, and the vision around what education should look like and what it should look like in my school. And in order to do that, I, I think I've got to understand the world around me. So as far as I'm concerned, infinite learning is, is exactly that. Uh, it's any topic, any subject, anywhere, uh, at any time. And, and yeah, I, I love it completely. And, and more than anything else, I love watching our students learn. And, and that light bulb moment that we've all enjoyed uh, throughout our careers, it still gets me going now. You know, that, oh, I get it, sir. You know, that, that's just one of the best things in teaching. So, uh, yeah, uh, I hope that's helpful. Brilliant, Chris. Thoroughly enjoyed uh, chatting with you. Thanks so much for your time. And, and good luck with the rest of this academic year with Shrewsbury. It's a, it's a finish off five years and, and good luck with your move to Tangley for the next academic year too. Thanks very much Lewis and, and Alan, uh, thoroughly enjoyed uh, talking with you both, it's been a pleasure. Well, thank you Chris. Top fine Chris, too. Thank you for listening to Sensemakers brought to you by the Infinite Learners podcast and backed by Tsunami the number one ego kit provider for schools worldwide. You can learn more about Tsunami by, by visiting tsunami-sport.com. And if you want to hear more from the Infinite Learners, you can find us on your favourite podcast platform, including Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Until next time, we'll see you.